Bonine and Anton Ryder. Yeah. What's up, guys? Hey. We are struggling to get through this series. <laughs> yeah. This has been a nightmare of a series. Yes. But by God, we're doing yes. it. Oh, it just, there's <laughs> so much, there's just more than you'd ever know. We're going to talk a lot about movies this time. A lot of movies. Almost Mostly more movies. movies. Almost <laughs> yeah. entirely. Like a majority. It's going to be a lot of music, then a lot of movies, and then. Yep, yep. Just a kiss more music. Once and you hear about more music, then suddenly you know the episode's about to abruptly end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so keep that in mind as we delve into part three of Tom Waits. Mm, mm, mm. So at the la- end of the last episode, it was the early 80s, and Tom had decided that he had had enough with convention, and he wanted to do things differently. He realized the world and community he had made for himself was holding him back artistically, Though it was nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. He just felt that he was a little too comfortable with his life in Los Angeles. If he's considering his living situation in L.A. comfortable, then there's logically only one other place in the country more comfortable. Bingo, you got it, and I bet you guys can guess where that is. On Mm -hmm. top of that, he was scared. His music he had created so far was just too plain, even though super goofy and and out there. But he Plain for him. Plain for him, yeah. And he thought that his current resume, he was just going to find his music collecting dust in thrift stores. And he wanted to create something, quote, something you would want to keep, unquote. Yeah, he had a goddamn nightmare that he was rifling through old vinyls at a Salvation Army and found one of his records. Sadly, that's how I got my Van Halen record. (laughs) at a yard sale oh yeah <laughs> yeah, See, I, yeah. Uh-huh. I think he just thought he was gonna be one of those records where you're flipping through it and you're like i have no idea who this person yeah, is i just, have no they keep going you know yeah. yeah and i mean hindsight 2020 i don't know if anyone who has a tom no. rates vinyl now is getting rid of it <laughs> yeah no. i don't think they're going yep. anywhere yeah, yeah he did exactly what he wanted to do he decided that he was gonna pack it up and he was gonna move to new york new york with his <laughs> wife kathleen brennan to reinvent himself he was leaving behind bones herb who he actually had recently fired he was also leaving behind his studio musicians chuck e and ricky though I think their relationship was pretty much done by the time he made his move, as well as anyone else he knew, some of whom he would never see again in his life. This was hinted at a little bit in the last episode, but Herb was <laughs> fisting Tom pretty hard. Kathleen's something father... nasty. Oh, something rough. Yeah, Kathleen's father <laughs> was a pretty high-level accountant, and she got him to look at Tom's financial situation, and he found out that Herb had been skimming most of Tom's royalties this whole time so that eagles money that oh. like barely helped him stay afloat could have 
helped a lot more. A lot more. Yeah, I think at one point Tom said that he thought he was a millionaire. He had no idea what his financials were doing, and he thought he was a millionaire, and it turns out he had like $20 in his 20 bucks. A little facetious maybe on both ends, but like yeah. it was it was that where Herb was really screwing him over. So a lot he got rid of him, and he began, uh, I think he began just self-managing, essentially. He and Kathleen managed themselves at this point. So mm-hmm. he began listening to more unique music like tribal records and music from faraway countries to expand his musical knowledge. He also began listening to someone that he had known for a long time but had never actually listened to, Captain Beefheart, who was actually also managed by Herb Cohen. We also touched on this briefly in the last episode, but Kathleen is going to play a huge part in this story now. And Mm -hmm. Tom said that he used to be super closed off and quote-unquote isolated in what he allowed himself to listen to, and she made him listen to a lot of new stuff. And if you know Tom Moit's music, it's about to take as drastic of a turn as it can and absolutely and a lot of people praise kathleen for it and a lot and some don't yeah to some kathleen was yoko ono so an actual comparison people made and to others she was george martin so she played a huge role in in tom's life again like austin said whether you like it or not negative or positive it's big Yeah, his soundtrack from One for the Heart had come out in February of 1982, actually to pretty high acclaim because people could distance the soundtrack from the movie associated with it, but Tom himself didn't love it. I was listening to a documentary on YouTube. Didn't he try to get it removed from stores because of the poor performance of the movie? So he tried to get it. I feel like I heard it in there. He tried to get it, stop it from coming out at all. He didn't want it coming in. Yeah, yeah, he didn't want yeah, to release it, and, and it, he may have tried yeah. after the fact to still try and get it removed. But I mean, there's really much you can do once it kind of comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we said yeah, in the last episode, he had been thinking about trying to reinvent himself for a while before being asked by uh, Francis Ford Coppola to write this, and Coppola wanted it to be more of the same that he had done in the past. Am I saying it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Okay, perfect. I did, I get so nervous. I double checked because I was scared I led you wrong, and the first one I listened to was like we've never done that before. Was like Coppola, and I was like, oh fuck, and then every other one was like Coppola. Yeah. <laughs> like I know he's a world famous director and so critically acclaimed, but man, that doesn't mean I won't fuck up the no, names. Names are hard. Just hope. Names are so hard. <laughs> oh, they're the worst, man. <laughs> but now it was done and he could reinvent himself truly. He first tried to cut himself off from his past collaborators, but stay in Los Angeles, actually recording his first album of his new era there. He had gone to Ireland with Kathleen in 1982 to see some of her family when he hashed out what he wanted in the new record. He didn't want Bones to help out, Bones Howe, his old producer, Mm -hmm. which would mark the first album in a decade where they wouldn't work together. Though Bones took the news in stride. I don't blame Tom for it. I blame Kathleen. And uh, quote. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, I think he's more in the Yoko Sour. side of things. Took it so. right in stride. <laughs> <laughs> he also wanted little to no strings or piano so that it would be completely obvious that this was something totally removed from Tom's past work. You think he still kept a piano in his home like he used to? Or do you think he just scrapped it? I bet he still kept one in there. A lot of people use piano, even if they don't end up not using the piano in their music, they use it to I mean, compose right. on because you can 
write yeah. parts on it and then transpose them to other yeah. pieces. I think he is a piano player. He's gonna he's gonna have one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. On top of moving away from the instruments he was comfortable with, he also chose to think outside the box for which instruments should be included. And in the end, the album was filled with a bunch of random instruments that I'm going to include here. One was the squeeze drums, which was a small drum like a tambourine, but without the metal shakers or the zills, as they're officially called. He was also inspired by the instruments of Bali music. So instruments like the gabang, a xylophone made of bamboo, the anklong, a type of bamboo chimes played by rattling the keys, though they are made to be played like piano as well. And he also had some more known but still untraditional instruments, like the calliope or the steam organ, as it's sometimes known, which is like the quintessential circus <laughs> instrument. Yeah, I was trying to look up videos of this to try and recreate the sound, but I stumbled upon a steampunk Facebook page and I was oh, no. I, I was so entranced by this lady in a wood cutout of a steam engine going to town on the steam organ. I couldn't entertain the thought anymore. Huh. <laughs> it, was del- it was delightful. I, oh, I did. I watched a video of a man playing playing a calliope, and it is just so funny. It's so it's a piano. But instead of keys, it it blows a whistle. Mm-hmm. That's how the instrument is played. And it there's one yeah, thing about one thing about it. There's no dynamics in it. It's just no. the, the key is being <laughs> played or it's not. Yep. <laughs> it yep. is a it's a hundred percent on or it's a hundred percent off. Like, oh. So you get some you get some loud ones stuff and in zeros. But you got it. That is fun. Just just go look up yep. the the episode of I think you should leave where Fred Willard plays the steam organ in pian- in the in the church because they could their old organist wasn't there <laughs> brought my own organ smashing plates yeah, I got the plates <laughs> the and the penny time. whistles <laughs> oh god that's so funny season two out soon oh yep it's it's not sponsored keep, keep an eye out R.I.P. Fred Willard Woo. R.I.P. Fred Willard, gone mm-hmm. too soon. Too soon. Mm. <laughs> so he also used the glass harmonica, an instrument actually invented by Ben Franklin, which sounds like the glass harp, but all the glasses are on their side on basically like a really slow lathe. So simply touching the glass will produce the eerie, ghostly sound that you hear from a glass harp. Ben Franklin actually made the instrument because he enjoyed playing on wine glasses, but he couldn't play on more than two at a time it made it really difficult so he wanted to put it on a lathe like that and that's why he decided yeah. to do that design it's kind of cool i watched a guy play it for like 10 minutes today <laughs> very fascinating that little inventor yeah, it's haunting smart it's, guy <laughs> it's very scary to listen to uh, oh, terrible love sex, yeah uh and of course tom wanted marimba in the album uh, i say of course because if you've heard the album he's, there's a lot of marimba oh yeah which he like he used it more than just about any other instrument. Um, he still had standard instruments like in it, like guitar and drums, as well as brass, like tuba, trombones, trumpets, and then there were banjos as well. It was all over the place. He w- there was nothing off the table for this album. And and the reason I'm listing this one out so much is because this is kind of the standard for his albums from here yeah. on out. It's like <laughs> get whatever you can and let's make it fucking crazy. And, yep. you know, that's just. 
This is just a small little splattering of the instruments that you get. It's And it's fun. I mean, he had drums in there as well, but they were really sporadic. Mm. And a lot of the songs, especially on this album and on his next album, like don't have normal beats. They more so have like marching, yeah. rhythmic drums and crashing cymbals and, and toms. It's not like a normal drum set beat. Yeah, it's like a procession, and if it sounds incredibly off-putting, you're absolutely on track, and it is amazing. And it's perfect, yeah. Yeah. Please go listen to it, because <laughs> it is so good the so way that good. he does it. <laughs> yep, and uh, Tom... It's like he sets a cadence instead of setting a melody. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. pretty cool. It is, wow. yeah. Everything I've well, listed yeah. here should not work, and it works perfectly. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. So, yeah. Tom, in his ever expanding search for musical sounds at one point even added the sound of a chair scraping across the ground into one of the songs just to add more ambient cool sounds and it works nope (laughs) percussive noises all over the album all everywhere Mm -hmm. he was really just trying to be inspired with whatever he heard much like he had done with the conversations of people in diners and bars his entire life, just whatever he heard, he thought, that's the thing I need to do. Man, was he good at it. So they finished up a couple tracks and then showed them to Asylum, who hated the new sound. Mm. But they let Tom keep working because in their minds, they were certain that there was no way this entire album could be this bizarre. This album ends up being 15 of the most bizarre songs I've ever heard. <laughs> it's the most crazy thing. God. Like not, and not only does he pump out so many albums, they're all so fucking long. All so yeah. long. And well, he starts like, experimenting huge. with shorter songs in the next few albums and, yeah. and from here on out as well. Like, it, it, especially after That's true. this album. That's true. They're not that long. Yeah, he really tries to. A lot get, of tracks. Yeah. Uh, so Tom and the band, as well as Kathleen, who helped Tom write, worked on the album through the month of August before wrapping it up to have it polished. All the musicians loved working on the album and were sad that it was over, and they were hoping that there was going to be a tour to go with it. But Tom came back with news that surprised everyone. There was going to be no tour, and he was off of Asylum Records. He showed the album to them, and they hated it so much that they weren't even willing to put it out. So I decided to look at the top Billboard songs for 82. Yeah. And uh, I do understand why this album might not be too appealing to record executives <laughs> at the time. Because mm. this is a year like Soft Cell, Tainted Love came out, mm. Olivia Newton-John, uh, Physical, yes. Jay Galsbine, Centerfold, <laughs> and Survivors, uh, yes. Eye of the Tiger all came out. So like... <laughs> Not very fitting for the time. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. But <laughs> not Tom's time. Different. One thing I will say about this album, compared to all of those albums, like "Tainted Love" is is the it's like an '80s song to a T. Like, yeah, it's it's an absolute mm. '80s song. Like Jay Giles Band, uh, 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 Centerfold. Like, there's it's a huge '80s song. Like, all of this is like just big '80s. Yep. But Tom Waits. His music is legitimately timeless because he uses. Oh, it does he, not fit anywhere. Yeah, so because he's using instruments yeah. that are hundreds of years old at this point. Like <laughs> he's using stuff like everyone's trying out the synth and stuff at this point, and he's like, "No, I'm going to use double basses and I'm going to use a mellotron, and that's going to be what I use." Yep. And like, you know, it's like God. this. I'm going to use just the goofiest stuff, and it makes yep. it so you can listen to it today, and it's like this could be made today. And it would still be goofy. You got a pipe that sounds kind of like a flute? I'll use that. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just <laughs> so out of place at all times that it's 
that actually makes it fit in all times. It's it's amazing. It's amazing yeah. how he does the things he does. You're doing something weird to my brain here. <laughs> so they assumed that it was they <laughs> Asylum assumed that this was just going to be throwing money away to try and like get it pressed onto vinyl and and cassette and stuff that's that was coming out and so they just wanted nothing to do with it. And Tom was super unhappy with all this. And so he decided that he was going to leave the label, which he had completed his obligations for. How many artists have signed an eight album contract and just become absolutely shackled to it? And he knocked it out in 10 years. I feel like, yeah, usually there's options to like Genius. leave at some point or most artists don't make it to eight albums. Like they do three albums yeah. and it just becomes total shit after that. And then the art and then the label's like, all right, get out of here. And yeah, he knocked it yeah, out and each him. album did. Just as well as the last. Ten years, eight albums. Let him run free. Yeah, and he does. He absolutely does. (laughs) He decided that if they weren't going to back him, he was going to find somebody who would. And shortly after the split between Tom and Asylum, a man named Chris Blackwell approached Tom about signing him to his label, Island Records. Island Records was home to bands like King Crimson, a now-dead Bob Marley, and an up-and-coming Irish band named U2. They are now owned by Universal Music Group and are home to artists like Bon Jovi, Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas, Elton John, The Killers, Fall Out Boy, and many, many more. I decided to scour through the artists that are like former artists. Uh, it's pretty insane how many artists they've had, past and current. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Dylan is on there, which I thought was kind of cool since he's a huge influence to the man himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Tom Waits. Impressive roster. Uh, and they are also, <laughs> finger quotes, home <laughs> to several other music cool. labels like Capitol Records, Decca Records, cool. Def Jam Records, Mercury God. Nashville, and of course, they're also <laughs> home to Geffen Records, former What's Asylum that? Records. Asylum Electra. That's, that's Universal Music Group, right? That's one of the big three, buddy. Yeah, 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 Universal. Yeah. What, a, what a conglomerate. Yeah, Chris and the wow. team. Wow. No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. They're a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris and the team really enjoyed Tom's music, but a big factor for bringing Tom onto the team was actually his wife, Kathleen, who was with Tom when they met and did most of the talking at Tom's request. So he was brought onto the label in mid-1983, and shortly after, Swordfish Trombones was released on September 1st, 1983. It was met with mixed results, where it was extremely well-received critically, with many critics calling the album groundbreaking and unlike anything they had ever heard before. But commercially, it didn't do much, only reaching 167 on the charts and certifying silver in Britain. People were surprised with how different it was from Tom's last release, One from the Heart, and it rubbed some of Tom's fans wrong because it was so different. The soundtrack for One from the Heart is straight up lounge music, so I cannot imagine how jarring it would have had to be to listen to it for the first time when it was released. Yeah, and I think that One from the Heart and and Swordfish Trombones were released in like a year apart. So a lot of people were surprised how different they were. (laughs) It's a whiplash. Yeah, they were like, "How how can this guy put out this album and also this album? Like they're so yeah. different. People got used to it, you know. Yeah, over well, time, come around. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Over time, it has been widely agreed that the album is a masterpiece and revolutionary in terms of what music could be. 
He has really helped laying down the groundwork for experimental music in the future as well. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. He's all about that experimental rock at this point. Yeah. So after the album Mm. came out, Tom decided not to tour it for a couple of reasons. One, he was on a new label who aligned more appropriately with his beliefs and allowed him to skip out on touring if he wanted to, which if you remember, Tom hated touring. But the bigger reason was because Kathleen was pregnant with their first child and Tom wanted to stay and help out. He had made the decision once he found out that she was pregnant that he was going to do unlike his father and be the most caring and attentive father he could be. He said he came from a family of runners and that was the path his dad led him towards. And he had come to the point in his life where he had to decide if he was a runner too. And he decided that he was not. And I will say, he wasn't. He stuck he wasn't. to it. He. Oh, he's a he's a family man. God, he's a very good father. He's a very good father. <laughs> he loved it. Yep. He swore he was going to put his family first, even over his career. So he took a short break during her pregnancy, and when his daughter Kelly Simone was born. I was curious as to the origins of the name. I think. They made it up because she is the only search result that comes up when you search the name. That's it. How about that? Okay. Okay. The book. So the book said the name is Franco Irish, but I also looked into it and I cannot find a single goddamn link. Nothing. It doesn't go straight to her (laughs) other than one that was, it was titled Kelly Simone. Meaning and the origin of the name. Ooh. Dead link. Oh, great. The whole yeah. thing stinks. I saw it too. Evan. I saw that too. <laughs> That's a conspiracy. Yep. Error. Big error. The Waits family the bought the name, bought the rights to the name. Very sneaky. Uh, Very sneaky. All those, hiding the definition. It means Satan. <laughs> all those Kel- Celts that died in vain now. Wow. That's unfortunate. Oh. <laughs> uh. Uh, yes. No, she's making art. Though he did do some interviews, and he filmed his first music video around this time, following the quickly growing trend, though Tom wasn't too keen on doing it, but he did it anyway. Mm-mm. But he also found a few more roles in films, acting in Rumblefish, The Outsiders, and The Cotton Club, all directed by Coppola, who sought him out for all these roles. Tom liked acting, and he saw it as a different way of trying to express and challenge himself, essentially getting to build out characters like he had been doing on stage for more than a decade at this point. But the difference was he always made sure to distance himself a bit from acting as he didn't see himself as a quote-unquote actor. Mm -hmm. He just saw it as something that he did. He's kind of been acting his whole life, though. Like, Mm -hmm. But if someone is acting their whole life, are they... Are they acting at all, or have well, they become so good at acting that they can do it without even letting on that they're acting or even knowing that they're acting? Am I reading too much into it? I think we're just not stoned enough for this. <laughs> this is a conversation yeah. that needs to be had hmm. five d- nugs deep. I think this made more sense to me at a different point in time. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Wow, man. Are kinda we all acting? I kind of get <laughs> But, Where, whoever, whoever wrote this was going. I <laughs> the whole world is a stage, oh. my friend. <laughs> yeah, you know, so eventually the line gets blurred. Wow, man. Persona comes from the word mask. <laughs> Whoa. Oh my, Whoa. God. oh, my God. All right. Oh it's my true. God. You guys are right on board. Uh, so he didn't have huge roles in any of these films with him only having a single line in The Outsiders. But again, that's kind of what he liked. While he liked acting, Mm -hmm. he hated the atmosphere, as the world of movie production is a lot of hurry up and wait. 
And Tom felt like a lot of times he would get called to set, get into these characters, and then have to sit around for so long that he would lose the character before he ever got in front of the camera. He preferred things to move a bit faster and be on a tighter schedule. And I will say, I can personally attest here because any production will come with a lot of delays and hiccups and it can be frustrating to deal with. Really goddamn subtle, Tony. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't digging it. <laughs> I was right. not digging it. Anyone here? Everybody has lives, okay? <laughs> well, Tony, well, sometimes things, things happen. I'm trying to build a business here, so. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll move some things around. Anyway, thanks for Sorry. thanks for doing this on a Tuesday night because we couldn't figure out any other time to do this because I took so long to get the script done. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah whatever. I don't think you're the only yeah. one that had to reschedule. And say, you really oh, think it's your right. fault? <laughs> We're just a couple guys having fun. <laughs> guys trying to do stuff. <laughs> so... Tom headed to London in late October to do some promotion for the album, as it was doing well there. Though it was not a super beneficial trip, as Tom was upset with having to travel again, especially so quickly after his daughter's birth. He was short and snarky with the interviewers who tried to pigeonhole Tom as a man who thrived in filth and low class, which frustrated Tom even more. He did an interview on a show called Loose Talk, and the guy was being an absolute shit trying to... Kind of, he was trying to draw attention to his old persona, which a lot of interviewers did, mm-hmm. and most people could see that that was behind him at this point. But they just kept trying to drag it back out. And at one point, the host makes a comment about Tom coming from the seedier parts of Los Angeles, and he like just snaps back, "What you mean, like a farming community?" <laughs> <laughs> He's quick, yeah. He was quick on his feet. <laughs> oh, just a little bit of spite. Oh, he's so he is so mad when people yep. still pigeonhole him into this Tropicana living like d- d- diner late night hosier yep. who's just like drunkard doesn't want to do anything. Yeah, he he hates all the of Tropicana's it. behind him. Let it go. Behind yep. him, man. Yep, those nudie mags no more than two inches thick at this point. Yeah, <laughs> only classy. he gets rid of them after the next the, the, only five months at a time. <laughs> Yeah, when they're used Five-month back stock. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1983 came to a close, and Tom finally moved to New York City with Kathleen and Kelly Simone. They got settled into their Manhattan apartment, where they would live for the next few years. Tom was enjoying the city, having more luck this time than his first attempt to make it in the Big Apple. Though in reality, I think he just really enjoyed having a family there. I think that that was really comforting for him because he just had a support system there out of the gate. But he was never yeah. bored when he moved to the city, that's for sure. He found his favorite coffee shops, his favorite bars and diners, and he continued to do what he had always done. Watch and listen the world around him to soak it in. Though, now he was doing it with Kathleen, now pregnant again, and Kelly Simone. New York offered a whole new collection of characters and scenarios for him to draw on. And the way he talks about it really gave me a whole different kind of understanding of New York. And I'm going to go ahead and say would not last long there. It sounds frightening. Yeah. Any 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 time in time, I don't think I'd make it. <laughs> yes, New York is <laughs> it's not the it's not the, the friendly place or the, the the fun place that like friends paints it out. To no, be. it sounds like it's very fast paced and people do not yep. give a shit about you. Nope. Yep. He made it sound like you got to be kind of tough and you got to be kind of, 
you got to be a little loose mentally to to get by and not snap. And, and I'm already hanging on by a thread. We are absolutely proving that we are from Iowa right now. Yeah. The big, well, I wouldn't make it 10 seconds in that big city. I don't think city. I could do it there. It moves Damn too big quick city for me, man. Whoa, what are all these? Look at this. They got trains that move through their whole town. Under the ground. And they're they're above top of the building. Oh, I don't like this. Let me get back in my truck. (laughs) I went for monorail. Ethan went for something. Yeah, I was going underground. (laughs) Both are great. Both true. But for real, New York needs to fix their their public transit systems. Anyway. Yeah, it's a really big issue. Maybe even housing. Very tough. So once they had settled in for a year or so. He decided that it was time to work on his follow-up album to Swordfish Trombones. He had already gotten to know musicians in the city of all genres, which inspired him to keep up his experimental genre for the next album. Somehow it gets even weirder with this next album. It's, it's I don't understand how he keeps like one-upping himself. I don't. <laughs> and he does. Oh, oh that's, he's that's consistent. He's got that's all consistent. this new material. God. All this new material mm-hmm. to run off of. Yeah, he, he wrote the album over a span of roughly two months in the city using practice rooms where he would play himself, but he could also stop playing and he would hear all different types of music coming from this area around him as a bunch of different musicians were playing, which inspired him to push things even further. Yeah, it was a building in Greenwich. Is it? No it's idea. pronounced Greenwich, right? I don't. It's spelled know. like Greenwich, but I, I think it's Greenwich. I don't know. <laughs> No clue. Uh, that village, whatever it is. And it was called the Fair West Beth Artist Community. I just like my basically... Friday night football. I like my Saturday night bars with my cover bands. And I don't know nothing about this Green Witch Village. About I'll, I'll make me a little bit hungry. All I know is I got to change the oil in the tractor and get back <laughs> out there. That's all I can think about. It sounds like they're using bad bull. Oh, using bad baloney. I tell you. That's why I scream. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Oh, just, Thank you. I will corn fed boys here. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. All right. So this building was full of practice spots, and you and you could rent them out. And so he split the cost with a couple of musicians that he had made friends with, and I I do it to this day, sadly. Hey, man. Save you Gotta money. do. We gotta do. Gotta find those practice spaces. I, you can survive. <laughs> the practice space that's not like someone's basement or like a dirty garage or You're something not like that. You got to get like a legitimate practice space or else you are not going to make Dedicated it. Dedicated. You're thriving. thriving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe You're I'm thriving. doing too well. I You're guess, doing you know? it. Yeah, correct. maybe that's yeah. not, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, well. <laughs> yeah, no, if, you're, me. if you don't have, like, spider webs on your, on your like, speakers and stuff every the beginning of every practice, then you're not. You're, you're doing, not doing fine. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I served my time. <laughs> so he, served my time. He also wrote the album based on the city he now resided in, even planning to name songs things like Union Square, Downtown Train, Midtown, and Rain Dogs, which eventually became the album's title as well. Well, and we will explain what Rain Dogs is in just a little bit through Tom's words because he's got a couple different um, options for what you want to believe. After a couple months, after a couple, after a couple months, he got into RCA Records in New York City, where artists like Louis Armstrong and Elvis Presley recorded. And it was also a popular place for Broadway cast recordings, as it had a room that could easily fit a hundred-piece orchestra in it. 
It was also a popular studio in the city, and Tom was ready to try it out, planning to self-produce this album as he had done with the last album. He brought in new musicians from the city, but planned to keep it experimental, leaning heavily on the marimba and percussive drums again, and adding in an accordion more heavily than he had tried before. I've always been pretty partial to the sound of the marimba. It's so pleasant, and you can't really argue with that, but doing this series has given me a much deeper love for it. I've been planning for a while on buying a new vehicle, but now I'm looking more closely at one of those 10-foot marimbas now. <laughs> when I was, when we were in high school, I had a friend, uh, Justin Alston, and I think I've mentioned think him so. on, this, on this show a, a once have. or twice, but... Oh yeah. He single-handedly he was he's an incredible percussion player. Uh, but he mm-hmm. single-handedly convinced our band director in high school to buy a six-foot marimba, incredibly Six nice marimba. Foot. So cool marimba. <laughs> and it got, it was beautiful. It got played a lot when he was there, and I can almost guarantee it <laughs> hasn't has been touched. Been since. Yeah, <laughs> it has done since. nothing. <laughs> Whatever. But oh god. When he was there, it was incredible. It made some beautiful oh, sounds. Those wonderful maroon colored pegs and oh, oh god, it looked good. Just a deep, rich, like probably one of my parts of my cruise. Man, it looked awesome. Yeah, I think that Oh, if you took the cover off that thing, if you took that cover off thing without the cover off that thing without permission, you're <sighs> fucked. Yeah, that you don't touch that thing. <laughs> Uh, just absolutely great for a public school instrument. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tom didn't have any traditional piano on this album. Instead, playing a pump organ and a harmonium, which sounds a lot like an accordion, but is played more similarly to a piano. And it doesn't have the same um, breathing quality that an accordion has. Yeah, I watched an 11-minute video on him because I'd, I'd never heard of this instrument in my entire life. So interesting comp concept. Instead of using like the traditional accordion pump, it's either a hand pump that you don't have to pump as frequently or a foot pump that you don't have to do as frequently. And it's got a bigger bellow, so it holds more air mm-hmm. pressure. It's more constant to the reed, so the sound is absolutely constant when you hit the keys as long as it's pumped. And they invented it because they didn't like the inconsistency of a organ because it needed constant air or it'd get flat. It's kind of cool. Interesting. I'm an accordion. Yeah, I watched a few videos. Yeah, do you mean an accordion or an organ? Well, no, they 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 invented the harmonium to replace organs because an organ, if it doesn't have enough air, the note gets flat. With this, the reeds are constant. It's either a good note or it won't go. Oh, so it has to be completely yes. inflated before it'll play. Yes. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Kind of cool. That makes sense. Man, Ethan, I like this edition. Yeah. I like the additions hey, to this episode. Interesting. We gave you we gave you a <laughs> quota and we said you this is the bar you have to rise above and you've delivered, buddy. Cheers. Keep it up. <laughs> hey man. That's very interesting. Uh yes, he also had more brass and woodwind instruments on this album as well as banjo, violin, and even a bode saw, which is kind of fun. He also carried around a tape recorder with him wherever he went and would just set it down and he would record ambient noises in the city and then he added those in as well. Tom also had a bone saw is ready. <laughs> 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 I I was gonna burst if I didn't. You found it, man. It out. You got it there. <laughs> I was. It started to hurt. <laughs> I get that. I got you for three minutes. <laughs> three, three minutes later. Time. <laughs> <laughs> like looks like it hurts when he oh, talks. Oh, he's mad. Yeah. That might be what caused his premature death, man. Good. 
Ooh. Sad. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> anyway. Big Macho Randy. Man Randy Savage. Anyway, Tom also <laughs> yeah, has. Yeah, it's definitely Macho. I was watching interviews of him yesterday. Oh, he's a frightening man. <laughs> yeah, he's. Big, big, like, whatever those glasses are called. He's awesome. Yeah, I was watching him talk shit on the Hulk. Quintessential 90s, man. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Tom also had a personal <laughs> dream come true on this album when Keith Richards came in to record with Tom. Okay, if you don't know too much about him, about Tom, and audibly laughed at the idea of him liking the Rolling Stones based on what we've talked about so far, then you're not alone, but you are wrong. (laughs) Yes, Tom was a huge fan of the Rolling Stones, and um, he doesn't make sense. He joked that he wanted Keith on the album, and through some pulled strings, they got him. Yeah, someone from Island Records asked who he wanted to play on the new album, and he said Keith Richards, according to him, 100% joking, and the rep just like turned to his assistant and was like, all right, call him right now. And I'm not, I'm not sure what happened from the call, but apparently a few days later he got a letter in the mail that just said, let's get the dance started. <laughs> Keith, Keith wrote a fucking letter back. He got a phone call, letter and he's like, in the mail. I'm going to write a letter back to him. <laughs> Well, one sentence I know what Tom like. <laughs> that is so epic, like, though. What? It's showmanship. If you if you subscribe to our Patreon in the next month, we'll send you a letter, and it will just say, "Let's get the dance started." Yep. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hang on to that. Put it on your fridge. Keith Effin Richards, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I do. I will say, and and we've talked about how I'm not a huge Rolling Stones fan. I'm learning. I'm mm. learning to like them over yeah. time. Whatever. But they were revolutionary in their time i mean they yes they did to rock and roll what tom was doing to experimental rock and stuff they were trying brand new things oh, yeah. and so i could i that's how i could see tom liking them that the fact that they were trying yeah. stuff that's pretty new but all the years baby yeah keith showed up to the studio late in the evening and the sessions were done with just tom and keith as well as a guitar tech in the studio leaving the rest of the band at home and in all, Keith played on three songs and even did background vocals on one. All right, so I, this is a huge curveball to me. I had no idea that – I was very surprised when I read this in the outline. And uh, so I decided to find which three songs he's on. They were Big Black – I think it's Maria. Or maybe, yeah, it's Mariah, Maria. Big Maria, Black Maria, yeah. Union yep. Square, and Blind Love. And on Blind Love, that's the song that he did the backing vocals on, and you can kind of hear it. Yeah. They're both, those three songs are very good. Blind Love! <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, <laughs> got anything else there, Austin? <laughs> I got. I wanted to try it also, sing, but I don't know it well enough. Yeah. <laughs> don't remember. You can hear his guitar parts, and they're like when you hear them and know that it's him. You're like, oh yeah, this is definitely a Keith Richards guitar solo for sure. It's kind of cool. Oh yeah. Mm, mm. I yeah. love the song "Blind Love." Must be blind love. <laughs> Only God love is blind love. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. That is beautiful. Thank you. Call me Tom. You can call me Tom. So they wrapped up recording, and Tom got ready to go back out on the road for his first tour in three years, as well as preparing to be a dad for the second time with Kathleen giving birth to Casey Waits on September 30th, 1985. Coincidentally, the same day his album Rain Dogs was released. Named after rain dogs, which follows Tom's tradition of muddying up the waters as to what they are, he said in an interview, You can get them at Coney Island. They're a little 
they come in a bun, water in a bun. That's all. It's a bun that's been. It's a bun without a hot dog in it. It's just left out in the rain. And they call it a rain dog. It's less expensive than a standard hot dog. I like the props. You gotta have something Good. to pretend you're smoking. Anywho, <laughs> another one though. A rain dog is anybody. People who sleep in doorways, people who don't have credit cards, people who don't go to church, people who they don't have a mortgage, you know, they're just people who f- f- on the fly on this whole plane by the seat of their pants <laughs> going down the road, you know. <laughs> Said I wasn't going to do it until Tony wrote it in here. And I'm, I'm trying. Got him. Take it. You could cho- choose whatever one you want, but there is. One more explanation of what a rain dog is. You know, dogs in the rain lose their way back home. They they even seem to look up at you and ask you for help to get back home because after it rains, every place they beat, it's been washed out. It's like Mission Impossible. <laughs> they go to sleep thinking the world's one way and wake up and somebody moved the furniture. That is three separate that answers. analogy actually makes a lot of sense. Yep. It makes a yeah. He he had a thought there. Yeah, it's a, a good thought. Been rain dogs. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna say probably yeah. Probably well, I don't know. It's it's probably one of the last two is the more yeah. the most true ones. The yeah the the actual dog ones is definitely more profound than just somebody just doesn't somebody is a homeless person essentially. Yeah. But yeah, I can't imagine Coney Island was just selling wet hot <laughs> I mean, I've never been. There. Be. I don't. Sounds know. pretty. They were. Sounds like a lawless place. So I don't. It's true. Know. Like actually, from anything I've heard, it could just be right. Yeah. <laughs> you want the fucking hot dog or not? Yeah. Take. Yeah. Eat it. Okay. Here's your wet dog, you, you bitch. Uh. So no, that's a that's a classic <laughs> Tom Waits non-answer answer. And I do want to say, following that, uh, uh I'm gonna say pretty pretty. Gr- great impression of tom waits i don't know man i had it, I thought i had it better earlier i fucking lost it the the joker <laughs> heath ledger's joker is rumored and i think there's no way to confirm it obviously but a lot of people say that heath ledger's joker is based on tom waits and there's youtube videos if on you it. listen to interviews with him you can definitely hear it and and Go back, you know, a minute and listen to Tom. Listen to Austin talk about it, or, or or imitate Tom Waits, and you can almost you can hear it there. And then go listen to Tom, and you can actually, yeah. There's one interview in there's, specific that like everyone is yeah. like, this is the interview that Heath Ledger. It's watched. almost spot on. It's yeah. insane. It's like to the Joker. Like that's you can even the way he acts in that interview. He like stumbles in. His head's down. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, you just gotta he does watch that it. weird like shoulder guard. Yeah, kinda head like, down. Yeah, kind of like tilts his head. And yep. <sighs> it's interesting. But yeah, that's that's just a fun little side fact that wasn't in the script or anything that we were meaning to mention at some point during this. Heath Ledger's Joker is almost certainly based yeah. on Tom Waits. Yeah, it's, it's cool. hard to deny after you watch that one. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Um, so this album, Rain Dogs, was more critically acclaimed than Swordfish Trombones, with it landing near the top 20 albums on many music publications top albums of the 1980s the entire decade and it was more commercially well received as well actually landing higher on the charts at 181 but it did well across the world even certifying gold in america his first album to do so 
A lot of people saw the addition of Keith Richards as well as the very poppy and out of place song Downtown Train as his attempt to reach the public more. And the song was even covered by Bob Seger and Rod Stewart and many, many others. But Rod Stewart's version actually reached number three on the charts and got a Grammy nomination. I bet you didn't know it was a cover. (laughs) (laughs) Boston, you are saying it like you knew. And I know you thought that the Rod Stewart version was the original. I mean, I, I bet they didn't know it was a cover. I bet they didn't know. I don't even think I've heard the Rod Stewart version. It was a cover by... By uh, Tom Waits. How about that? Yeah, just like I totally, I totally knew. <laughs> you knew, man. You knew. That's why you're doing this podcast. <laughs> yep, yep. So just like old Fifty Five yeah. from Closing Time, his original album, Tom didn't love the covers, but he enjoyed the paychecks that came with it. And we've talked about this many times, but Tom like really seemed like a musician's musician. Like while he never became a household name for the general public. Other musicians loved him and saw the pure genius in his work. Just to really drive that point home, Keith Richards releases his first solo album three years after this and thanks Tom Waits for being a big part of the inspiration for it. And that's that is freaking huge no matter what Tony says. Wow. <laughs> Tony, what do you what do you think about it? I'm just curious. I think it's not a big deal and I actually hate Keith Richards more now. How about that? Is that what you guys wanted? Double down. You want me to play in on this? I respect it. Can't always get what What you want. (laughs) Isn't that just a Rolling Stones song? I didn't get it. Yeah, it is. I I, You know what? Full disclosure. First two words out of my mouth, I didn't realize. (laughs) Just uh, just fit fit with the situation. It works. It works. It's fine. Well, <laughs> you guys remember when that song was fucking Donald Trump's like campaign song? That's so funny. <laughs> That's a good look. It's great. You always get what you want. God. Uh, Why would you pick that, that is funny. What do you think that is meant? Too funny because no yeah, nobody else was allowing their songs to be released for Trump to use. All that he had yeah, was like true. that and fucking the the oh, God bless the USA. <sighs> Stupid. Wait. Toby, Toby would have given him. Oh, yeah. oh, you'd think. I bet he just didn't ask. Yep, didn't he ask. Just didn't yeah. ask. Man, that's too, that's unfortunate. Missed opportunity. <laughs> that would have been an election we'll one put in a, a landslide. Boot in your ass, it's the American way. <laughs> could you imagine? Could you just? Have, could you imagine Donald Trump walking out on stage for a campaign rally with like fucking "I love this bar" just jamming in the background? <laughs> Red solo, <laughs> stupid little dance. You fill me up. Let's have a party. God. Oh stupid. man! If only you could see us, audience, seeing us doing our dumbass. We're doing the we were doing the thing from the video that where he dances. Yeah, you know, you and know. it's not where he doesn't how he dances. All right, we'll we'll leave it alone now. We don't need to get political on this show. We're Whatever. trying to get away from it. Anyway, yeah, I do. I, I will say this. So I find some irony in the fact that Herb Cohen hired him as a songwriter, and not as a performer. And for the most part, the most popular Tom Waits songs are sung by other musicians with Tom getting songwriting credits. Like, I just think that's a little bit funny that all that happened. And, and this is kind of where he ends up. But that's a little that's a little bit. funny, yeah. isn't it? it's a it's a isn't it ironic? It, isn't it ironic? Is a little isn't, bit funny. Like, don't you think? 
Um, but and I really do think <laughs> none of this discouraged Tom. I mean, that's that's for sure. It, I mean, his one of his biggest influences was Bob Dylan, and uh, in this aspect, it seems like he tends to walk in his footsteps because he's writing songs, and then they hit real big when other people perform them. But he does tend to pave his own road in the type of music he continues to do after this. Yes, yeah. and unlike Bob Dylan, he does not think that any of the covers are he's forfeited the rights to any of the yeah. covers like like Bob Dylan did with uh songs like All Along the Watchtower mm-hmm. and Knocking on Heaven's Door. Yep. Anyway. Huh. Um so two weeks about that? after Rain Dogs came out, Tom went out on tour to tour both Rain Dogs as well as Swordfish Trombones, where they traveled around Europe and North America. Tom brought Kathleen on tour as well as the rest of the family through Europe with him to try and lessen the hatred of being on the road and being away, and also to help out with the week's old Casey. This tour was such a huge jump from the last tour he'd done. He was, like, putting actual theaters now and filling them up, and he sold out the Dominion Theater in London seven nights in a row, and that is a 2,100-cap theater. That's nuts. Much different. That's a big jump. <laughs> they love him over there. They do. Yep, yep. Yeah. The UK really embraced him. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it's awesome that he's getting this love with his new new persona that he's trying to try out and people are, are buying into it 100%. Yeah. So Tom and the band would travel around and then Kathleen and the kids would jump to a new location every couple days, which was like close to Tom, but it wouldn't be exactly where he was. So no matter where he was, the kids and his wife would be close so that he could just travel maybe an hour to an hour and a half and and always be able to see the kids easily. But when they went back to America, Kathleen and the kids headed to her parents' house to have help as his tour across America was much more traveling than his tour across Europe. And the tour only lasted about six weeks in all, which also helped with Tom's sanity. It wrapped up mid-November and Tom quickly headed back home to his family. It's really nice to see a musician who is actually a family man instead of a musician who talks <laughs> about and writes about how much he loves being a father. It's nice to see yeah. a, a little flip-flop here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John Dever. He goes all in on being a dad. He loves it. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He absolutely loves it. Yeah, he was happy to be done with being on the road, but he also had a much better experience with being on the road than he had in the past. The show was a huge success, like Austin said, with a ton of shows selling out in, in decent-sized theaters, and the shows themselves went super well as well. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a single mention of him getting pelted with fruit and vegetables while on stage, which sounds like an improvement. Not in this episode, friend. <laughs> all he had to do was it's all gone. this one. Severely <laughs> distance himself from Frank Zappa, and turns out things were just yep. <laughs> smooth sailing from then. Better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yep. this was a tight-knit group who played a couple of songs off each of the new albums and then sprinkled in some older classics as well. Tom did like to try and fly by the seat of his pants in show by calling out songs out of the blue, which would screw up the musicians if they weren't like at the correct instrument for the song he had called or if they <laughs> if they just weren't ready to start playing a song that he had called. But Tom loved it that way. I mean, we've said it many times. He loved imperfection. And to, to, to further back this, Tom never had a set list in any of his shows that's a fucking nightmare (laughs) yeah he like really liked to to test them it sounds like so he made them have to be ready for anything Mm -hmm. and then it did make them super tight by all accounts like they he could yell any 
any song out pretty much and it was just perfect after that and uh he but he tested them in other ways too it sounds like um one of the musicians ralph carney he would always wear a navy suit with white socks Mm. and apparently every single night Tom would say, we had band uniforms, but five of them got lost in the fire, and Ralph has the only one that was left. <laughs> God. That's just that's just fun onstage banter, though. That's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> just giving it to him. <laughs> just, yeah, just giving it to him a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if Ralph didn't like it, he would have stopped wearing it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. Or he would have quit. So. <laughs> he did. Or that. It out. <laughs> it is, you have to wonder if, like, it was the same songs every night just in different orders or if like every musician had to learn Tom's entire back catalog his entire catalog <laughs> oh, so yeah I have no idea it it made it sound like they knew every song from the last what uh two or three album well two albums yeah. rain dogs and, and then swordfish yeah, and, yeah. yeah. but yeah I, I think it was all of those songs from that and then sporadic from his last from his older stuff, yeah. but I have no idea how much. You kind of know what songs you're going to play off the old albums. You're not going to like, you know, you're not just going to pick a random song off Heart Attack and Vine and be like, you got to play this song right now, or anything like that. Yep, you've whittled it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tom loved to keep it freestyle. That's what. That's kind of what he went for, uh, th- and that's what he wanted. He, he loved the thing of no rules, no expectations, and he, he was proving on the road as he had done in the studio, that he was tied to nothing, and he was happiest when he was doing what he wanted. So with the two are fully behind him, he enjoyed life as a father and a husband for a little bit before being brought back into the world to again be back on the big screen. Eclectic director Jim Jarmusch was making a new movie in New Orleans called Down by Law and wrote a part specifically for Tom. So Tom agreed to do the part and brought the whole family down to New Orleans with him. Tom had actually contacted Jim before because he liked his work and wanted to uh, wanted him to direct a screenplay that he was working on, and it didn't work out. But Jim ended up creating this character like specifically with him in mind. Mm-hmm. So, who, who who would he have gone with if it didn't work out? Tom Cruise. So, I don't know who else it could have. It sounds like mm. a yep, like a ten-year-old Heath Ledger probably could have done the part. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know wow. when Heath Ledger was born. But, wow, but we're in like late eighties. Okay, 80s now we got to make the movie where this movie couldn't happen. Wow, that's too much. That's, that's too that's much. It, that's deep. loose. Yeah. Heath Ledger was born. The more I talk about it, the looser it is. Heath Ledger was born in nineteen seventy-nine, <laughs> so he would have been like eleven at this point. Yeah, could work. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) So Tom thought it was going to be like a small part written for him like he had done in the past. But when he got the script, he found out that he was a main character and it was going to be a longer process than planned. But still, Tom agreed. And so over the next two months or so, they rehearsed and then filmed the movie. Tom loved the experience of having a larger role. He enjoyed this more than his past movies because of Jim's style of directing, because I think Jim was much more tight with his schedule, so it it made things much easier for Tom. Mm -hmm. He felt that there wasn't as much waiting around as he was used to, and the movie, released in 1986, was a box office success, though only a small one. It's a black and white picture made in the 80s, so it's eccentric, but the... the Fun. Fun, very fun. The (laughs) reviews are great, though, so it's on the list. Yes, so even though the movie was a success, which is always a good thing, the bigger thing about this was the relationship that Jim and Tom, or the Prince of Melancholy, as Jim would call Tom, 
would build and maintain for the foreseeable future, with Jim even directing two of Tom's future music videos, and Jim having Tom star in one of his coffee and cigarette shorts alongside Iggy Pop, which is super fun if you've never seen them. <laughs> it's, you can find the whole this whole short on YouTube, and I highly recommend mm-hmm. watching it because it is amazing. It's so it's funny. Yeah, the whole project is eleven short films shot in black and white, and it's in a diner. And the general premise is people talking over coffee and cigarettes. Obviously, yep. wow. And and this one is is Tom and Iggy Pop talking about how they just they've quit smoking cigarettes. They don't smoke them anymore. So. <laughs> I can just have can one because I've, I've quit. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> I've quit so now, so quit. I can just have one. It's so funny. They like, celebrate quitting by smoking. <laughs> Iggy, like, I think Iggy, okay. like, offers him a cigarette, and Tom's like, oh, no, I, I just quit. I just quit. And, like, it's, like, yeah. kind of quiet for, like, a couple seconds, like, um, like 15 seconds or whatever, and then Tom's like, you know, the best part about quitting is that you can have one to celebrate, and then they can have one now to <laughs> <laughs> they just start smoking again. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, it's really uh, amazing. But like Iggy Pop is like such a goober in it, and he's like, I- I- Iggy's like, hey, I think I think I found you like a drummer that you should try out for your next album. And Tom's like, wait, you think I don't have a drummer? Wait, you don't think I can drum? You don't think I need? A, you think I need a, a different drummer? It's very funny. Oh, it God. is very funny. And there's like that whole subplot where Tom is also a surgeon and he's late because there was a car <laughs> yeah. accident on the way there yeah. and he had to do roadside surgery and it's just not the same when you don't have your tools. What? It's just murder. Yeah. <laughs> God. Oh, Ethan, please go watch it after this. It's, I will. It's very funny. It's amazing. It's well, before funny. bed. And also there is one with... There's there's one with RZA and Jizza from Wu Tang talking to and Bill, Bill Murray, Murray is the waiter, yep. and they're they're drinking herbal tea because of how bad how bad nicotine and caffeine. Are. <laughs> oh my god, it's <laughs> amazing. Wu Tang, oh, it's yeah, very. Oh my god, so fun. God, so, so well done. Yep. Anyway, go look those up because they are fun. <laughs> anyway, so after this, Tom got to work on something he had wanted to do for a long time and had even made an attempt to do once before. A musical, a full Broadway on stage musical based roughly on his and his father Frank's life. Tom, with the help of Kathleen, had the idea ready to go and brought it around to different theaters in New York, but no one bit. But before long, Tom found an outlet in Chicago in the Steppenwolf Theater Company, started by three actors, Terry Kinney, Jeff Perry, and the most famous of the three, Gary Sinise. Lieutenant Dan. Ice cream. Lieutenant Dan, baby. Ice cream. I bought you some ice cream. I bought you some ice cream, Lieutenant Dan. God damn it. Uh, Gary Sinise and the Lieutenant Dan band. What a band. What a good band. What a... Oh, and you gotta love it that it's real. It's a real thing. You gotta love that it's real. real. So the company reached out to Tom to use a couple of his songs for a film. The film, I don't remember the name of, was actually directed by John Malkovich, who was a big part of the Steppenwolf Theater huh. Company for a long time. But that's a side point. Um, and so, <laughs> that's also huge. Big, big, kind of fun. So after this, they started talks, and Tom maybe mentioned, or some, somehow it brought, got brought up that Tom wanted to do a live, a, a live production. And so in late 1985, they agreed to run this show that he had he had an idea for for two months at the Briar Street Theater in Chicago. 
Tom was going to play the not-so-fictional character Frank, and Terry Kinney was going to direct. Maybe we all follow our father's paths one way or another. Well, I, I hope not. I sure hope <laughs> I hope that is true to varying degrees amongst yeah. the three of us. Maybe we do. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we do. Oh dear! Who is to say? Please, no. Who is to say? That is true. Wow. The journey is still underway. <laughs> you can't write the book when you're in the middle of of of, uh, of living it. No, you can't. <laughs> anyway. No, you can't. So they brought back some of the musicians who played with Tom on Rain Dogs and then some locals to fill in the the missing spots. And much like in the studio, Tom wanted the musicians to play things not perfectly. He wanted imperfections in the playing of his musicians, as he felt having it be perfect every single night would be boring. I do enjoy that he's really persistent about having an improvisational tone to all their live performances because I'm sure like if you're a person attending one of these mm-hmm. shows it makes it that much more unique and memorable when you go back or like you, even if you talk to someone else that also saw it and maybe noted differences between each other it'd be kind of cool mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah that's that's what he loved yeah and it's he's building it's like a collector's yeah, item exactly each, each performance oh, wow Wow, so true. People are saying, I saw this song, this song, this song. Exactly. Saying, I saw this you song, get it. this song, this song. Oh, no, no way. Cool. Well, all the songs were the same every night. In, <laughs> I don't know, man. On the stage. Yeah, you can't, the can't prove that. production every night. Can't prove that. All right, you're I true. That's true. That's true. You got me there. <laughs> so, in 1986, they got to work finishing the writing and rehearsing of all the music for the musical. The pre-production for the play went smoothly, with the only major hiccup being that Terry Kinney dropped out of directing the show just a couple weeks before it opened, likely because of creative differences between Terry and Tom. And Gary Sinise had to step in. Well, we've already mentioned this, but he will go on to portray a commander in the Vietnam War, so he is really fit for this part as director. <laughs> that is great point, See? man. Great point. I'm sure that's what won yep. Spielberg over for the part of Lieutenant Dan was when he directed Tom Williams. Oh, you've show. been a director before? <laughs> You're going to be commander. <laughs> wow. No, but I have a lot of experience in managerial acting. It's <laughs> basically great. all you are. Perfect. <laughs> so... So there were also small issues of budget struggles and small disagreements, but they were all smoothed over on time. And on May 31st, 1986, Frank's Wild Years debuted. It was a fun show with Tom doing a nice job in the lead role, playing a down-on-his-luck accordion player in the city who had dreams of grandeur. And while it was well-received, there were issues with it, with some awkward moments, and some said it kind of lost sight of itself at times. I mean, we said in the very first episode that he started trying to work on a musical but yeah. it went nowhere at the time and that was this musical like he's been working on it for so long it, being disjointed is not surprising <laughs> yeah working on it for decades that could start to take on a yeah. little bit of an incoherent tone at times and <laughs> yeah. it was a three hour show I mean the show ran just short yeah. of three hours I am <laughs> like starting to understand why it was probably like such a hard pitch I mean Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is what almost two hours and that's a, a musical about a, a flying car <laughs> and then you have a three hour <laughs> musical about an accordion player who's struggling to make it it's, it does seem like a hard pitch doesn't it <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. that's a hard one to walk into. <laughs> wow, what a I've, point you've made! And I fucking hate Chitty Chitty. <laughs> See, exactly, I hate Chitty Chitty Bang Bang too. <laughs> point. <Nah. laughs> so, Tom oh, and Kathleen man. 
hoped that the show would be a hit that they would be able to bring back to New York, but over time, during the run in Chicago, it became clear that it wasn't going to happen. So they ran the show for its two months and then called it a day, with the exception of Tom and the band deciding to take the music from the play and record an album out of it. It sounds kind of low, like the show was well-received and people wanted there to be a continuing showing, but he said that it would take too much work to turn into a full reoccurring production, mm-hmm. and he liked the idea of continuing his Frank saga in another hmm. medium. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, they it was well-received, and, and it probably could have lived in New York, but it would have taken, like you said, a lot of work to get it ready for New York standards. Yeah. So less out, less music, right? Yeah, exactly. So they got to work in Universal Recording Studios in Chicago in mid 1986 after the show ended to start recording the album. Over the course of their time in the studio, the songs from the play changed drastically, with some early demos eventually being released showing just how different the songs were. Tom pushed the members to try new things, having them try out each other's instruments, especially if they weren't comfortable <laughs> playing them. He stuck to a pretty standard lineup of instruments, or at least standard for his albums. Standard in reference to Tom Waits is always relative. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how you could honestly get more, like, not standard than what he has yeah. done. Not standard. I don't know how you could find more unique instruments than what he's done. God. I'm sure over time he will. It's <laughs> part of the magic. Yeah. This album still had plenty of marimba, horns, and woodwinds, as well as strings, drums, and keys in the form of organs and mellotrons. And Tom himself tried out singing through a bullhorn into the mic to give his voice a quality similar to what he said sounded like his voice at the bottom of a pool. And this makes me wonder if this was an influence on Stone Temple Pilots, because Scott Whelan definitely does that on the beginning of Dead and Bloated. And as we said, a lot of musicians took influence from Tom Waits. Yeah, very possible. I am sitting like a rose that somebody gave me on my birthday deathbed. I am. Such a good song. R.I.P. Scott Whelan. R.I.P. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet there was some yeah. influence here. It wasn't unheard of to do it, but it was still fairly unique at this time. Yeah. I feel. Hopefully. Yeah, and Tom loved using the bullhorn, and it's something that he continues to do now, and I think that he uses it a lot in his live shows. I think that's a big, big, big fun thing for him to do. So the album mm. was finished up after just a few weeks, with a couple songs actually being recorded in L.A. after the fact at Sunset Sounds. Tom pushed off the release of the album for some time to take on another acting role, this time in a movie called Candy Mountain, directed by Robert Frank and written by both Robert and Rudy Wurlitzer, who both agreed they wanted Tom in the film. This role is kind of hilarious for him because of I guess he plays a self-made millionaire and he's playing golf in the the one scene he's in. <laughs> yeah, he's in like a he's like wears like a nice suit, and I think that yeah. this is the movie the first time that he um that he is in a movie with uh Fred Gwynn, who mm. is is most famous for playing Fred Munster in the Munsters. He's like a huge dude, and yeah, yes. Tom huh. and Fred become really really good friends. I think this is the first yes. movie they're in together, but I don't think it's the last. Anyway, so this movie, Candy Mountain, was shot in upstate. A lot of movies in this one. A lot of movies, man. He's a a multifaceted (laughs) character, which is why this ended up being a four-part series. (laughs) Uh, So it was shot in upstate New York, which made it easy for Tom to still see his family in New York City, which was just a couple hours away. He finished his parts up pretty quick, 
and Candy Mountain came out a year later, though it was something of a flop. Right after it finished, though, he stayed in upstate New York to work on another film, this time with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep called Ironweed, where they played bums in the 1930s. He had a larger role in this film, playing a simpleton sidekick of Jack Nicholson. It was a sad comedic period piece, which again was a bit of a flop when it was released at the end of the year. I don't know how everyone feels about Jack Nicholson, but um, it's safe to say he's like a he's good. great actor. Yeah, right? he's like yeah. pretty good. Yeah, pretty highly acclaimed. He's like, yeah, he's <laughs> like, all right. And he said that Waits' performance was superb, and so I had to look up some scenes. And I will be making a point of watching this very soon because he was nailing it in what I saw. Oh, nice. he's good. Did you watch the scene where hey. he's like, I got cancer. Only thing I ever what? got. <laughs> what? Yep. That's yep. like his first, that's the first scene he's in. He's just this simpleton bum. He's like, yep, doctor said I got cancer. The only thing I ever got. Look at the suit. Jesus. Look at the suit, Ralph. Got the whole thing. <laughs> yep. That's him. That's him. Yep. yep. Dom really enjoyed his. good. Yeah. He, and he enjoyed his time making these films, though. He decided during the filming that the colder weather, as well as the impressive speed that the city seemed to operate at 24-7, that living in New York had run its course, and that he and Kathleen were ready to head back home to Los Angeles. I decided to do a quick comparison to see how much better the average temperature was in Los Angeles. Average of 67 degrees in the year compared to New York's, which is an average of 56 mm. degrees year mm. round. So, yeah, a bit warmer. Sounds nicer. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. There's a no there's snow. a reason yeah. why New York City gets the gets the big old Christmas tree and is kind of criti- <sighs> is kind of acclaimed for their Christmas season because it, it <laughs> you get to kind of celebrate Christmas there, whereas LA <laughs> it's just beautiful year round. <laughs> you get Christmas or you get beauty year round. You get it's a tough, tough choice, tough thing to choose between. One season, skip all the shitty ones. <laughs> this is a bit of an off tangent, but my wife was talking about uh, going. I think we were talking about going up to Lutzen for Austin's wedding, and she's like, "We looked up the weather and it was like perfect there." And I was like, "You know, like mm. places, other places in the United States are just nice all the time, and we could just live there. We could just move there and live there instead of living in yeah. Iowa, where like it's a hundred and five <laughs> degrees with a hundred percent humidity, or it's negative forty degrees, and you get and you get eight inches of snow a day." And yeah. she was like, "But I think that if I, I think that if I, if we lived in a place that was nice all the time, we wouldn't appreciate the weather." I was like, you wouldn't appreciate beautiful weather year-round. That You would get sick of the incredibly nice weather. Oh, I've never not appreciated it. You know? Yeah, it would be nice every <laughs> single time nice. it happened. Imagine oh, man, a place yeah. where the pool only closes wow. for mm. two weeks. They exist. Yeah, exactly. It would just, you, just wouldn't, you just wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't yeah, hate yeah. going outside every miserable. day if it was just yeah. nice out. <laughs> It wouldn't yes. hurt. <laughs> I would maybe want a little change. Yeah, I just God. I wouldn't I wouldn't abhor it the whole like for a yeah, lot of I'd the be time. Happy to come back yeah. to it. God. <sighs> anyway, not happy to come back to this. <laughs> this absolutely sucks most of the time. <laughs> uh, and so, anyway, in late 1987, Tom, Kathleen, and the kids headed back to L.A., very near where their home was when they left. Nearly. Four years ago and actually they lived very near tom's father frank and so when they mm. got back to la tom had to get ready for his next tour as frank's wild years had just come out on august 17th it was well received reaching up 
to 115 on the charts, though it only certified gold in Canada, which means it sold 40,000 copies there. Generous people up there, eh? Yeah, they set the bar low. So it was harder to listen to than swordfish, trombones, and rain dogs, which may not be surprising as they did have the task of translating the songs from a musical into a standalone album with no exposition between the songs to help explain them. Many people saw the three albums that had recently come out, Swordfish, Trombones, Rain Dogs, and now Frank's Wild Years, as something of a trilogy, with the song Frank's Wild Years appearing on Swordfish, Trombones, released four years before the album Frank's Wild Years. Everyone who bought into this theory said that this album, Frank's Wild Years, was the trilogy maturing and coming to a close. So do, are we giving this theory any credence or... Mm. Mm. A little, yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, well, he said in that uh, he he since said that part of the reason he wanted to release it as an album instead of putting more time into the show was to close out the theoretical Frank trilogy that he started with the first two albums. So probably not. Wow. Okay. How about that? <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that means no. They're all dumb. Mm. <laughs> Fan, it's a fan fiction. It's it's yeah. it's head canon more than anything, I guess. Mm, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. <sighs> no, I think it's real. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm giving it credence. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, so, on top of a standard tour, Tom and Kathleen made plans to film a concert movie so that more people could see Tom's show and Tom would have something to show for his tours, as they came and went with little in terms of photo or video or basically anything. He also wanted to show that he wasn't the same character he had been portraying 15 years ago. With his long, unkempt hair and scruffy beard, drinking hand, and cigarette-smoking guy, that was, that was gone. That was the old Tom, and he wanted to show what the new Tom he hated that when he was interviewed, people still <laughs> expected this dead. character. <laughs> he did he did a show celebrating Roy Orbison where he played alongside Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, Elvis Costello, as well as many others, which was something he didn't do often because he didn't like these who's who events that, that were so often done. But he did it out of his love for Roy. And then a week later, he was back out on the road to tour. That's an artist you just pay your respects to and you put your ego aside for a little bit. Yep. The pretty saddest singer woman. in the world, man. He's got mm. this. Walking down the street, pretty woman. <laughs> kind of like to me. I can't believe you. You're, You're not, not the, the truth. truth. <laughs> no one could look at No one could look as good as you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sad. Sad. <laughs> sad I see, yeah, Tony went was sad, and we just went right into Pretty Woman. Oh yeah, Pretty Woman. So sad. <laughs> not so sad. No, it's not. <laughs> but kinda. Uh, so they planned a whole new show with like lots of lights and a style still showing his love for the city life. They toured around North America, where they filled their concert over five shows in L.A. and San Francisco on November fifth and 9th and then they headed back to Europe to keep touring. They wrapped up the two-month tour on December 8th, and Tom headed back home. The concert film was edited with them lowering Tom's voice to give it more power and then adding sound effects in post to build it up even more. Do you think he wanted that, or was that like a step too far? Because I 
feel like he wouldn't like his voice being altered. I gotta wonder. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that he was a huge fan of any of this. I don't think he was a fan of yeah. really much of any of this, but I think that it was kind of a Kathleen wanted it. And it, it probably didn't hurt him, but I think that he wasn't happy with the results here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, even the whole production of like filming something and making a, I don't know. Yeah. But definitely the voice like changing. They're thing. meant to be more intimate. Yeah, yeah. Definitely the voice changing thing was probably too far. Then, yeah, a lot of the goofy sound effects added in. It just doesn't, it doesn't sell the authenticity of his shows very no. well. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, it, it shows. I mean, after a year, Big Time, the album called Big Time, was released in September 1988 as both a film with live concert footage as well as directed clips between them. And then alongside of it, an album of the same name was released. So this one is a truly live album, right? Like, they just added the post-production on his voice, and that's probably about it, maybe? Yes. Yep, this one yeah. was truly filmed in front of a live crowd poop. Yeah, in in a in a concert venue, not not like uh, Nighthawks at the yeah yeah, a di- yeah night yeah Nighthawks at the diner whatever. Yes, this album did okay, but a lot of people thought that it fell a bit flat compared to a real live show, as it was something that really couldn't be reproduced anywhere but in the moment. And another reason that the live album may not have gone over quite as well was because Tom was very busy working on something completely different. He was in the middle of mm-hmm. suing Frito-Lay after they made a parody of his song Step Right Up to promote their new Salsa Rio Doritos. <laughs> mm. Now, yeah, if you're if you're, you're unfamiliar with the Frito Bandito, go ahead and look that up and you'll understand that Frito-Lay, were, they were under some fire for this little guy. Oh, yeah. And naturally, <laughs> the best way to remedy a little adversarial <laughs> stereotyping is to just get rid of it and steal a song instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It worked yeah, out That's what they thought, apparently. It worked out, <laughs> They right? went for it. The, the, song, <laughs> the song, Step Right Up, ironically, was about how terrible salespeople were, but- the irony was totally lost on Frito-Lay when they changed the words and had another singer come in to imitate Tom's voice. Now, this is personal. This is my opinion. I think that the song probably fell into fair use because it is a parody, but I will say it was argued in court, or it could be argued and was argued in court, that the only changes they made to the lyrics were going from a generic quote-unquote product being toted to a specific product being toted. I think it's got to try a smidge harder. Just a little. Yeah, exactly. Like, the parody parody didn't fundamentally change the meaning of the song, and I will argue it actually did the opposite. Um, It's a tricky case. Uh, and the courts took a full four years to figure it out. But in the end, they they sided with Tom, and he got a $2.6 million judgment, which, funnily enough, was more than he had ever made on any of his albums. That inflates to a healthy sum of $5.8 million now. So, pretty good sum. Yeah. Mm. That's not uh, that's not too bad. Yeah, they they quoted the fact, like I said, that they that the song wasn't changed enough to be considered parody, um, and that the singer they brought in imitated his voice pretty much perfectly. Like he, they didn't try to change the song fundamentally, and so that's what mm. that's what got him. And then after this, 
he went after Levi Strauss after Herb Cohen licensed Heart Attack and Vine, the song, to Screamin' Jay Hawkins to sing for the ad. I put a spell on you. <laughs> no, that is a fun song. Oh, <laughs> it's a so good. fucking fun song. Oh my god. I love it. Oh. Tom couldn't sue on the grounds Jay. that they used his song as Herb Cohen actually owned the copyright to it, and Jay Hawkins wasn't impersonating him as they sounded nothing alike. So not a ton is actually known about this case, but it's assumed that Tom sued on the basis of false endorsement, which, according to IT Law Wiki, occurs when a person's identity is attached to a product or service in such a way that consumers are likely to be misled about that person's sponsorship or approval of the product or service. Tony, are, are you considering a profession in law? Because lately you have been giving me lawyer vibes, and it, it's not a bad thing. It's just I want to know if you're considering it. Wow. I do appreciate that. Uh, no. Okay. I'm not. Are you, con- are you considering calling the lead attorney from this trial, <laughs> like the Firefest attorney? Yeah. <laughs> that I was considering. That was right. God. That. Well, this one's o- this one's over. So you might get. I might. Yeah, yeah. They might be on. They might be able to talk about it. Yeah. Get they probably the could at this point. Patreon thing mm. going. <laughs> Record the will, phone call. I will say it. though, gonna, they need it at this point. <laughs> I I do love copyright law. I find it fascinating, and so mm. I like to read about it and look it up a lot. Cool, but that's, that's besides the point, and I probably interesting get interesting stuff drastically wrong every time I talk about it. That's fine. <laughs> so this case it's real to me. Well, thank you. This case against Levi Strauss was eventually settled again in Tom's favor, and Levi paid a small fee to Tom, and they put out an apology in Billboard magazine. But that was years away. And Tom was busy with an album and a video release, which he did not tour for, as it would almost be counterintuitive to tour for this live album, instead choosing to work on another film, this time in Montana. The movie, Cold Feet, was a bit of a flop, even with cameos by Jeff Bridges and Rip Torn. But Tom loved the country and the open air of Montana and decided that he wanted something like this for him and his family. God, flop after flop with these big-time <laughs> actors. But, but from what I've seen, it ain't his fault, baby. No. A lot of people say every time, every part that Tom plays, he does a really good job in. Like they, yep. A lot of people say that Tom is a highlight in the films that he's in. Yep. So after this film also heard after this film was done, he headed back to LA with his family, but it all felt just a little bit off now, having gotten to enjoy the peace and quiet. But for now, he pushed it to the back of his mind so that he could do small cameos for various films and albums, including singing Hi Ho for Hal Wilner, who is working on an album called Stay Awake, which reimagined various Disney songs and had songs sung by Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Ringo Starr, Sanito Connor and Michael Stipe, the singer for REM, which is just kind of cool. Uh, the mm-hmm. whole thing is on Spotify. If you want to go listen to it, uh, Hi Ho by Tom Waits is not as yeah, joyous as the Snow White version. It's like this version <laughs> is almost completely unrecognizable. It doesn't sound like the same song, and it sounds like it belongs in a horror movie, if you can imagine. Yeah. It's a little twisted. It's a little, kind of yeah, it's dark. Scary. Yeah. It's a little twisted. <laughs> I, th- I, do, I think that. The album is like called 
it's I think it's called like reimaginings of various Disney. Yeah, it's songs. got a longer like, title. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's they 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 go for it. They lean in on yeah. on trying some stuff out. Oh yeah, but anyway. After this, he found himself back on the stage where he played Curly in the play Demon Wine alongside Philip Baker Hall and Bill Pullman. And he also wrote the music for the musical The Black Rider, the casting of The Magic Bullets by Robert Wilson, who was an avant-garde playwright whose past productions included The Life and Times of Joseph Stalin, which was a 12-hour play. And like a twelve hour it was a twelve hour play. It was a play that lasted Kill twelve me. fucking hours. Kill me or let me fucking leave. No. <laughs> let me go. Yeah. Welcome to Joseph no. Stalin's reign, bitch. No. Just I don't want to go to the gulag. No. This is what this is what the Soviet Union felt. <laughs> let me leave. No. Another play was called Ka Mountain and the Gardenia Terrace. A story about a family and some people changing. That's the title of this play. And this one lasted an entire week and took place in Iran, though it was Iran in the 1970s, which was much nicer. And I will not explain any more about this play because it is a fascinating play and is something that you should read about if you have time. I'm just going to reiterate, it lasted a week. The the play lasted a week. Wait, the the play is between week to watch? I just can't think. I I can't get a hold of it to react. Yeah. Anyway... Well, like I can't, okay. So, I can't get it. I can't so here's grab the it. thing. I'm not going to explain anymore, and you God can go read it. up on it. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Fucking purgatory. Yeah. Go read up on it. I have to sit through this play for okay. a straight it fucking is, week. It is interesting. <sighs> so, between learning parts huh. for Demon Wine and trying to create music for the Black Rider, Tom began to feel overwhelmed with the entire thing. All right. So, I'm just a person reading text. Like, of him doing these things, and it's incredibly overwhelming. Like, the actual <laughs> pressure of completing these projects with the intention of releasing them for public consumption would add a pressure I don't think I'll ever imagine in my entire life. Like, this is insane. Just all at once. Yeah, and they, they were pretty mm. close to back-to-back. I think you said for a while he was, like, rehearsing for, like, eight hours, and then he would have to go <sighs> home and learn parts and then also write music for no. this other play, and it was it was tough. And at one point, Tom and Robert even had to travel to Kansas, and then they had to travel to Hamburg, Germany at another time to write and record the songs, which would eventually form into an album released four years down the road in 1993. But as soon as he was done with the play, which premiered in March 1990, Tom was off to act in a barrage of films, including the lead in the film Bearskin, an urban fairy tale, which flopped. The Two Jakes, a sequel to Chinatown, which didn't do great. Terry Gillum's The Fisher King, in which Tom had a single scene that the studio hated. Queen's Logic, where he had a small cameo. A play in the Field of the Lord, where Tom played a mercenary for hire, obviously pulling influences from his old manager. Shortcuts, where he acted alongside Lily Tomlin. And the classic, loved to be hated on, Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he acted alongside Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, Anthony Hopkins, and Winona Ryder. Okay, I feel like we've mentioned this before. Why is it hated? Why do people love to hate it? It's a successful film, but like a lot of people rag on Keanu Reeves because he does a God awful English accent. Okay, um, <laughs> and it's just it's just a little campy, but it's fun. Okay. I mean that's it, that's really the biggest biggest. It's reason. honestly it's way more loved than anything. But 
yeah. or being campy. There are reasons why. And, yeah, I mean, it's a little oh, bit like the room, where it's like, it's land, everything is landed fine. It's like a successful version, like, where everyone is like, this movie is okay. fun to watch. It's a little, it's a little cringy, and it's okay. fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had a great time in production, getting to see Coppola again. And though he didn't love having to do the things that he had to do, like wear a straight jacket for an extended period of time or put real bugs in his mouth, Mm -hmm. he still had a lot of fun. Okay, this is one of those kind of what's what's because we have some accounts of him saying he hated that. But in his podcast, he talked about how they were going to use, they were going to make fake bugs for him, but he wanted it to be convincing and he insisted they be real. See, like Tom did. Yeah, I feel like he probably didn't like it at the time, or he, like, didn't like it but chose to do it anyway. Like, I don't want to say, like, masochistic or anything, but, yeah, he's like, no, we got to do it the the real way if we're going to do it. Yeah. And so he's like, I won't like it, but for the the sake of the art, we got to do it this way. And cut no fuck corners. (laughs) That's right. And he even was tasked with making some of the grunting sounds made by Dracula after Gary Oldman couldn't do it convincingly enough. And while he was filming, he even got to see his old friend and producer Bones Howe, who was working at Sony Pictures at the time where they filmed a lot of the film. So after it all wrapped up in 1992, Tom decided that the city was done with him. So he moved his family to Ford Valley, California, an unincorporated town seven hours away from L.A., and to really prove that the man who thrived on nudie mags, beer cans, and cigarettes in sleazy motel rooms was gone, Tom quit drinking for the last time. And with all these changes, he decided that it was time to get back into the studio. First putting out a soundtrack for the Jim Jarmusch film Night on Earth, and then deciding to do another full studio album. Only this time, he didn't have the big city to work off instead doing everything in a town of only 6,000 people, all of which we will get to in the conclusion of Tom Waits, right here on On In 5. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, we haven't even gotten into my favorite Tom. <laughs> ready to oh, my there. God. He really finds something fun yep. in the next six or seven albums we're going to talk about. It's like you think his voice can't get any weirder. It just keeps getting weird. <laughs> since, so it does. So fucking fun. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Everybody, bro. We didn't even... Everybody, I didn't bro. even mention... I didn't even mention the two compilation albums that Asylum put out yep. that Tom... Hated oh, yeah. that they came out. Not happy. Asylum. The Anatomy of and. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. Asylum Years, I think is what it's called. I think um, it's like Tom, Asylum Years. Asylum yeah. Years, yeah. Tom hated both yep. of them because he hated that Asylum was making money off him <sighs> and he felt that his art should be done. It should be listened to in its own little space. In context. Yeah, space being on a yeah, comp. each album. No comps. Exactly. He hated yeah. it. We yeah. didn't get to talk about it. That's right. Somehow we thought this was going to be a two-parter, I and it is a four-parter <laughs> that we were having to cut How? shit out. Yep. How, do How we about ever do it? That? You know, I think any of I think any of the times we did a one part, it's just that we sh- did, we weren't ready. To Shouldn't do, have. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we could have gone further. Yeah. Now we're at the point where we're Whoops. like, well, we can't leave this out, and then it ends yep. up. Now it's like yeah. just compounding where we don't leave out most and get to four and we still left out too much 
I can't wait for like a episode Felix 107, Felix. like the like the 50th series that we do, and it's like, oh yeah, we're doing a 19 part series on like fucking uh, like Lone Star or something Strap like that. It. It's like, what is going on? This is a quarterly podcast. Brooks and Dunn, here it comes. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna fucking we're gonna become hardcore history before too long. Where we put out one series every two years. Uh, He's well liked. We'll, we'll go to a four. We'll go to a four season per year format. One artist per season. Oh four artists. Year. Don't tease me with a good time, yeah. buddy. All I'm right. Actually, I'm convincing myself tomorrow. It sounds really so, good. Yeah. <laughs> Austin, why don't you get before, us out before of here? We, yeah, before we commit to anything we're not prepared for mentally, uh, if you want to find us yeah. on anything, you know, it's it's we're on in five, W-E-R-E, on in five, uh, uh, everything, Twitter, yep. Instagram, Facebook, uh, Patreon. Oh, wow. um, our website is also, it's the same one, dot com. Uh, if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or anything where you can review podcasts, we'd love it if you just gave us like some stars or something. You don't oh. even have to use your fingers to type yeah. stuff like if that's hard because I think it is. We'd prefer so, if you don't. Yeah, just give us <laughs> whatever you is an honest representation. I'm um, just kidding. We actually we just really like reading the reviews that you give us. And we, if well, you I have any, please. I just if you don't have any critiques. You. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. If you have any yeah. critiques, let us oh, know. Oh, yeah. We're always looking. Oh, break us down. We learn. We won't make the same mistake twice. Make it personal. Yeah. Yeah. Make it hurt. (laughs) Tell me how dumb I am. (laughs) So, yeah. Make it gross. And and hey, and if you do that, and if you send him a picture of you doing that, Mm, he'll write you a beautiful letter. Yeah, I will. So so think about that. It could be good. And, and, And I promise you, it will say... Let's get the dance started. <laughs> Let's get the dance started. Dance started. All right. So you oh come, come back in two weeks, and we're gonna we're gonna cover the best time. Oh my god, it's gonna be so good. Yeah, we got one more part of Tom, and then we are gonna probably take a episode off because we've been a fucking disaster for this last yeah. like month. And then we got a our, lot of life has happened. Yeah, we got we got a, lot, we got a big <laughs> series starting up after this, and we're so excited for it. And uh, oh, boy. Wait. it's gonna get big. We'll give you a it's little. It's gonna go deep. We'll give you a little taste on who it is on the next episode. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Be good. In the meantime, yeah, be safe out there and have have a little bit of fun.